Hello, this is Kat. This is Phoebe. Welcome to Feminine Chaos. So today we are talking about the same thing that um, like every podcast is talking about. We're not original, but that's okay because... Is I... it whether Elaine Benes is hot? Y- yes. No. I <laughs> I don't... This is such like a serious conversation topic that I feel bad about even trying to joke my way into okay. it. Okay, we should not be joking. We should not... It is a serious topic. It is a serious topic. <laughs> Except now I'm laughing nervously about it. And your dog is barking nervously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, the the bark is the signal that we're gonna we're gonna be super serious. But no, um, a, a very tragic thing happened in New York City. Um, on I actually don't even know what day it was. It was May first. May first. Okay. Yes. A thirty-year-old homeless man named Jordan Neely was choked to death on the New York City subway by a 24-year-old Marine named Daniel Penny. It seems like a volatile situation of the type that, you know, happens not uncommonly on the New York City subway, but ended up getting out of control because somebody decided to intervene and then didn't know when to stop intervening. And I mean, I, I believe that this was not intentionally done i don't think that this guy like i don't think that uh penny got on the train thinking i'm gonna murder someone today but nevertheless he put jordan neely in a chokehold for seems like in a really really long amount of time and the result was that neely passed out and then passed away so uh we're going to talk about that through the lenses of our respective kind of culture beats and uh phoebe do you want to do you want to jump in? Did I miss anything? Well, you might have missed things because from what I've seen on Twitter, you have never been on public transit before. Yes, ever, I <laughs> ever. <laughs> it's true. So yeah. you might want to you might, you know, want to before offering your thoughts on this, learn what this sort of underground transit that sounds so futuristic. What is it? What is this underground train you speak of? People drive their cars into um, these sort of underground passages. I saw that in Die Hard 3 once. It was very <laughs> exciting. Yeah. But no. 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 So <laughs> this is, um, yeah, this is this was a story. I've been following it, I should say, very closely because um, while I live in Toronto now, which is in Canada, so, you know, I'm in, in the midst of a rural, you know, bucolic place that is downtown Toronto. I grew up in New York City. I went to grad school at NYU. I know very well the Broadway Lafayette station where this took place. That's like one of the stations near NYU. Um, I never regularly commuted by F train specifically, but I know that station and uh, that line and just generally like this is all very, very familiar to me, as is just kind of on the one hand, like the New York subway kind of way of life, which is I think like people sort of jostling each other is pretty typical and very different from what I see in Toronto. But I also have been living in Toronto for most of the time since 2015 and have seen, especially like since the pandemic, things really, really falling apart on public transit. Um, And I wrote about that um, for the Globe and Mail before all of this happened, um, about like the sort of need for safety um, on, on transit. And it's... It just seems like it's a matter of time until things like this happen more, until they happen elsewhere, because, like, you can say defund the police. You can say let everybody, you know, figure out who they are and 
be left in peace to, you know, shoot up heroin peaceably next to the children sitting nearby, whatever, you know, that's sort of the like hyper, hyper progressive argument these days. You can say all that, but then there are going to be vigilantes, there's going to be people taking matters into their own hands, and that seems potentially worse than um, having some kind of oversight. And the piece you wrote about um, safety on public transportation, that was that preceded uh, the Neely thing, right? That's, that's correct. Um, there may be something on its way on what actually just happened. But what I was trying to make sense of was basically um, something that seems to be happening in like the discourse around transit that just seems very muddled where you get like on the one hand it is still safer even in this day and age even with all the lunatics out there to be on the subway than to drive it's just like if you look at statistics you are it is still a safer form of transit however so i think like there is on the one hand this kind of like looking at all of this as like if you if you're somebody who like you cat has never seen a subway before right couldn't even picture it. <laughs> <laughs> this, just to say, I'm joking. This was something somebody falsely accused Kat of um, on the it's internet. Fa- I was falsely accused of not riding the subway. <laughs> of all of the things I've been accused of on the internet, this one, this is the aggression that will not stand, man. It was, it's, it was funny, but it was extremely, extremely Twitter. Um, yeah, I think there's a way that people who are not at least often on the subway might imagine that it's like a lot scarier of a place than it is. And like, cause I've had people even just like day to day in Toronto be like, wow, you take your children on, on the streetcar, like good for you or something as if it's like amazing to do. And it's the most, then you go out on, get on the streetcar, there's tons of children, you know, like it's not, it's not unusual and it's not generally that scary. However, um, it's gotten a lot scarier and it's pretty every day now to get on a streetcar, a bus, a subway, and there's that person in the car who is, um, you know, that person in that space who is like unhinged, possibly yelling and lunging, possibly using hard drugs, whatever it is, you know, it's just, um, it's not great. And if supposedly the eco thing is for everybody to be using transit, well, you know, <laughs> It's, that's not happening. And then just, just one other point is that I think that the way the discussion of safety seems to play out, you get a lot of people who are not often using public transit because they don't need to because they have the money to avoid it. I don't mean because they don't live in a city. I mean because they live in the city but just you know have the money to not need to use public transit have these notions sort of about what should happen and what's dangerous and what isn't based on like discourse and not Mm -hmm. based on like what it's actually what's happening yes okay so I wrote something about this too which also by the time we release this podcast you think both of our pieces will be up and so you can read them we will include links in the show notes so the thing that I I feel like is difficult to explain to people who are not who haven't spent significant time in New York or significant time on the subway especially on the one hand the subway has always been a place with a sort of a baseline level of 
like criminality and antisocial behavior and, you know, people being loud or being strange and, you know, and sometimes acting in ways that seem like they might escalate to something violent. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of antisocial behavior, some of it that has a sinister tinge, a lot that doesn't, but is just a, a nuisance. And this is something that um, has been, it's just kind of part of the landscape. If you spend a lot of time riding public transportation in New York, which I did in fact when I lived there, I think I can count the number of times I took a taxi on the fingers of one hand, and I lived there for like seven years. So, mm-hmm. um, so <laughs> screwed you, Twitter critic. Anyway, at the same time, the subway is different uh, in the wake of COVID than it used to be. And I don't live in the city anymore, but I do still go there regularly. I still take public transportation when I'm there, and um, it's just you know you are just a lot more likely. Even though it's still safe, even though not everybody on the train who's doing this, it's, you know, one, like each train has one person who's doing this mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do see more of it. You know, people who are in the grips of just absolute psychosis, who are acting out in ways that seem like they might turn violent, you know, who are screaming, who are being confrontational. There is more of it. it and I don't know if it's because there like the city itself is in kind of the grips of both a homelessness and mental health crisis as are many places around the country in the wake of covid and beyond and beyond i speak to you from another whole country that's same, right it's that's, same happening you're here. on the same continent so yes I, I know it's it's basically just you know another state canada yeah. is the 52nd state <laughs> <laughs> canadians love it when americans say that um yeah i i don't know i i think the the reasons are complicated and I think the sort of discourse answer is obviously going to be simplistic to say is it you know the is the fact that the vibe is defund the police at the heart of what's happening probably not because that seems a little too simplistic and I don't know that vibes have such power well no I mean Eric Adams who's the current mayor of New York City was elected in part because he did make a campaign promise to flood the subway system with uniformed police officers and I think he has um you do see quite a lot of uniformed police down there it's just that their presence is not necessarily the deterrent to this type of behavior when it is happening mm-hmm. on the trains so they'll be in the station but the crazy people I mean forgive me um but, you know, the people who are unwell, who are, you know, acting out, they are on the trains. And so it's it's just difficult. And I mean, I, I sympathize with the police who are attempting to do this job because I can imagine that it is very, very hard to pin down like the location of, you know, where the where the behavior is happening. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, for sure, this notion. Well, OK, so let's just like briefly land on the idea of defunding the police because I think that is kind of important, um, just in that when people say, oh, defund the police, like we don't want police around. Well, you know, if you don't have police officers available to intervene in a situation like this where somebody is behaving in a way that is perceived rightly or wrongly by, you know, enough people as threatening, then you end up with vigilantes. You end up with people deciding to take matters into their own hands, which is what happened here. And and it's so goddamn tragic i mean it did not need to happen for for so many reasons it didn't need to happen yes um yes to all of that i mean i i'm partly just sort of as like a matter of curiosity wondering how it is in new york versus toronto these days because like there's open use of hard drugs in the subway in toronto that's like i don't know whether that's so much the case 
in like equivalently sort of busy and upscale parts of Manhattan, say. I don't know whether that's generally like it's gotten pretty much like you are like dodging the person shooting up or smoking crack to, you know, get into the subway. That's pretty normal here now. I don't know how normal that is in New York. But also sort of another thing is that like in New York, like it's so normal for people to be yelling at each other. Whereas in Toronto, for anybody to be making like any sound, like people who are commuting together, like friends, family, whatever, like just sit in silence. It's a very different environment. So um, I'm just trying to picture, yeah, I don't know. That's some of it, just my own curiosity in terms of, oh, yeah. So there, there was some effort to have more cops in transit here, although that was like some sort of trial thing and that didn't actually continue on. But yes, this was very upsetting. And there was a point, can we talk about this without talking about the spat on Twitter that is like half of Twitter now? Jamel Bowie and uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams seem to be interacting on this topic slightly. Um, but there was something in this that, um, I mean, I, I, I would say my position is somewhere between the two. I don't really, I don't, you know, I, I think both were making good points. Um, I'm not really... Uh, I, I'm not, you know, taking a side on that particular uh, dispute. But what I will say is that a point that Jamel Bowie made that I thought was really um, correct was like, if you're talking about danger in the subway, like one person in that subway car, mer- like not mer- necessarily, mer- you know, one person in that subway car killed another person, right? And it's not, it wasn't the crazy person. So, I mean, I think we'll, we'll get into this too, but like, even if you think it was self-defense, even if you, even if that turns out to have been the case, you know, like you can't kind of keep, you can't talk about this without remembering like that somebody died, one person died, that's the person who, so like all the discussions of, you know, mentally ill people are most likely to harm themselves. This is there, you you know, or to be hurt themselves. Well, here you go. Like, this is not a counter example. Right, right. Yeah. Um, this is actually something that I mentioned in the piece that I wrote about this and um, that has been on my mind just because obviously I did have a, a family member who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, as did Jordan Neely. And um, my uncle, you know, who passed away recently, he was, I mean, he, you know, he heard voices, he had delusions. Um, because of the way his disease manifested, he really was much more likely to be victimized by other people than he was to make people uncomfortable himself. He was a kind of a quiet man. But, um, you know, the fact is that, you know, people who have this mental illness, especially, um, it can manifest in ways that are perceived as very threatening and as very frightening. And, you know, that's not really anybody's fault. It's the nature of the disease. But it is so important to, you know, to have, I don't know, like ways to, to intervene and to, to find like ways of protecting people who are in the grips of something like this, so that they don't end up in a situation where they're kind of out it, like I don't want to say on the loose, which makes it sound like they should be institutionalized, although some of them probably should be. It would be the healthiest thing for, for them and for society. But they're in a situation where they're acting out of control. They can't get themselves under control. And people end up taking matters into their own hands because they feel, you know, rightly or wrongly as though there actually is an imminent threat. Right. I mean, it's all extremely complicated, extremely upsetting, especially for anyone with a personal connection to things like this. Um, Freddie DeBoer had a characteristically uh, interesting 
and strong piece on this topics about um yes i read that too um yeah i mean just this this idea that seems to have come up and this is something that i believe is your um intervention on the topic about the idea of like that you shouldn't be afraid when somebody's acting in a way that's you know <laughs> frightening and that i think is um the strangest and most parting ways with reality not in the sense of mental illness but parting ways with reality in the sense of um discourse i guess thing that seems to have come out of it that if somebody's in a subway car yelling that they're you know they're gonna sort of go down with this ship you know they're 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 ready to have life in prison they're ready to die whatever which nearly reportedly said that he you know he had had it he was ready to go to jail and he didn't care if they gave him life in prison now i mean that obviously implies that he's about to do something that would result in him receiving life in prison which uh there are only a limited number of crimes for which that would be your sentence so right so i mean i don't think that it's irrational if somebody says something like that to be scared i think however that i have personally when i think about how like i what i can't help but do and i'm sure you know i'm not alone in this is because i am you know like the world's protagonist and all of this but also just you know how would you not think about it like this if i were in that subway car how would i have understood what was happening you know and I think that I'm, I've been in many subway cars where somebody's been acting in a way where I have not known, where it seemed unpredictable, where it seemed scary, and sometimes where it's not logistically possible to go to another subway car. I think that that happens all the time. Certainly whenever I'm in there with a stroller, it's, yeah, good luck. You know, you can't really change um, subway cars with a stroller. Um, I think I tend to assume that people who seem extremely menacing are not actually going to do anything. I may be wrong. It may be a stupid assumption, but I tend to tune things out even if like, like there was some woman, this was probably like in 2020 saying that she was going to like give my baby COVID or something like this. And it was like, it was terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. But like, she's just talking, she's not, it seems an unusual, like I, I guess the the big sort of like black box question for me here, and I think this is why like I'm reluctant to have a take on like what happened in a place I was not is like, was this something that you could just kind of dismiss as somebody's ranting and they're saying all kinds of things? And did Penny escalate the situation by, you know, this chokehold that went tragically wrong? Or were people genuinely extremely scared? And the fact that people did not say, like, leave this poor homeless man alone, but rather assisted him makes me think that people probably were scared. Yeah, I'd really like to know, and I, I, I'm sure that we will eventually find out what precipitated the chokehold. Yes, that would be, that would seem relevant before having, like, yes. Yeah. The one thing I do know, um, or that at least has been reported, is that prior to any interaction between Penny and Neely, people on the train were calling 911 about Neely, which suggests that he, like, something was happening that was above and beyond the normal craziness that you see on the subway, which, you know, if, again, if you ride the subway, like, at all, you'll see that there's kind of a tacit agreement that, like, for, for the most part, you just don't engage you don't acknowledge that it's happening you look at the floor you wait for the person to go away and like everybody does this and everybody does this even sometimes when things escalate to the point of actually being violent there was this um this video that made the rounds i guess it was late late last year in which 
Um, there's somebody, a, a man on the train who is, you know, clearly unhinged, you know, walking around, yelling, ranting. He sits down um, on one of the bench seats next to a bunch of people who try to kind of scatter to make room for him. And the last person to try to get up is the woman sitting next to him. He grabs her by the hair and he pulls her back down. And this is being filmed, um, you know, by people on the train. And you see this poor woman who's being held down by her hair is looking around and she mouths please help me but nobody does and this guy proceeds to like drag her around the train by her hair for a while and nobody steps in and the thing is like I mean that is all so bad but what do you do in a situation like that yes yes and this is where I think um (laughs) the different countries do matter I think the chances somebody has a gun who's acting in an unhinged way now i tend to assume that somebody who's really really out of it on the new york subway probably doesn't have a gun because they're not with it enough to but um you never know i feel like or the person or the vigilante might have a gun right as happened um with bernard getz in whenever that was in 1984 long time ago yeah yeah um in canada you assume the person does not have a gun whoever is acting strange because they generally don't um because there just aren't so many guns around there more than in some countries but not so many as in the states um so yeah it's it's the the bystander thing is tricky because i don't think i mean i guess this is kind of like what ended up being my sort of stance on this is that you can't know if you're just a person riding the subway you can't know what what's really worth intervening on what isn't you can't know what you would be safely able to intervene on and what you couldn't um yeah I I think I think it's tricky I think um not reacting or like sort of not doing anything is definitely the default and whether what happened in this latest um really tragic incident was um that people were scared of Neely that people were scared of Penny that people were just looking at their phones and not paying attention and you know and had headphones on you know what I mean like who knows it seems kind of complicated um and I certainly do not think that had I been in that subway car I would have done anything other than try to get away Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, same yeah so I was you know I'm reluctant also to have a take on the incident itself I think that we'll know more soon and we just need to be patient on that front um and you know until information comes out the thing that I am interested in and that I I do feel qualified to discuss is how the discourse around this coalesced, especially on the progressive left, where as I mean, Freddie DeBoer did note this, people were in this kind of competition to be the most unconcerned about violence on the subway, about, you know, the idea that, that there may be something threatening about a person behaving in an erratic way on a train car and that, um, there's all this performative tweeting going on, people describing how, you know, they've never felt scared on the subway, you know, and it's, it's ridiculous, you know, that you're just you're hallucinating, you're just like a snowflake, if you've ever perceived any kind of a threat from a person on the subway. And the thing that made this so remarkable to me, um, because I am a, a person who generally believes in in kind of taking the I don't know if you would say like a laissez-faire approach but in you know assuming that things are going to be okay you know in 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 being resilient um but this stuff was coming from people who up until quite recently were arguing that like a tweet makes them unsafe and the person whose take I found just like so 
absolutely bonkers that I I subtweeted about it and I then I ended up actually citing it in this piece that I wrote. It was from Elizabeth Spears, who is a founding editor of the original Gawker, now is a kind of a media personality about town. Uh, I think that she also teaches journalism at NYU. She is somebody who, back when Dave Weigel, or Weigel, was suspended from the Washington Post without pay for retweeting a joke that some people perceived as sexist. Elizabeth Spears was among the people saying that this was entirely justified because he had telegraphed to uh, all of his female colleagues that he didn't respect women and like and couldn't work with women. And then she in the wake of Neely's death and this discourse about whether it was justified to feel threatened by, you know, somebody behaving erratically on the subway, she got on Twitter um, and responded to somebody who was talking about, you know, having seen, like, menacing behavior in the subway and basically said that they were making it up. She said, like, these monsters in your head can be dealt with in therapy or something like that. Um, She was like, I've been riding the subway for 23 years and nobody has ever menaced me. And I just found this stunning in so many ways. I mean, if you know, the idea that somebody who retweets a joke that you find offensive is telegraphing his like deep, dark inner loathing towards women. And so, you know, he needs to suffer consequences. But a man who is screaming on the subway that he's prepared to die today and go to prison for life is telegraphing nothing about his intent. Um, That just does not square. Yes, a lot of thoughts on this um, among them. This seems a lot like the sort of Me Too era thing of it's um, like somebody shouldn't be able to work in a prestige industry, you know, but that like they should be kind of shuffled off to like a less prestige industry. You know what I mean? Like or or even the whole sort of like yes. college sexual assault. But what about like people who aren't college students? You know what I mean? Like this whole idea of there being two different two different tracks in life, like one that has to be like hyper safe and the other that's like this kind of like wild west in a way. Yes, yes. People were like, you know, he doesn't, he's not entitled to work in media. He can go get a job like as a garbage man. And it's like, well, what about all the garbage women? I mean, like the female garbage men who who like, are they not entitled to be uh, comfortable at work? Exactly. So I wonder if it has a little bit of crossover with that, this idea of there being kind of, but it, but that, but also this idea that like if you're um, that there are people who are just sort of so tragic and pathetic that like nothing could be I don't know if it's like expected of them but like almost I almost feel like it's treating the crazy person on the subway as almost like a natural phenomenon and not a human being with whom some sort of intervention might be possible you know like it's a kind of giving up um, but also like like this person has it harder than everybody else in the subway car so let's just you know let them do whatever it is they're gonna do and I think that that can work in some cases but obviously not others and I mean if somebody's shouting what sound like threats to kill everybody in that subway car I kind of oh yeah I don't know I mean I I guess and then there's this whole separate question of if physically restraining somebody seems necessary why would it end in their death? That to me seems like a matter for a trial to assess and people who know about these things, like not me, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I having watched you know a, a piece of this video i mean i just i, I think it was a t- such a chaotic situation um you know again i do not think that daniel penny who put neely in this chokehold i don't think he intended to kill him i mean it does not seem like that was the case but you know at the same time he did end up killing him you know through like ignorance of of what he was doing or just because you know things were so chaotic that he did not really stop to think about what was happening and i don't know i mean like this is where i i really feel for kind of everybody involved obviously you know i i feel terrible for jordan neely and for his family um i feel bad for daniel penny who you know presumably killed a man not intending to like that takes a toll on a person to take a life when you had no intention of doing so and have to live with that I feel bad for everybody on the train car who ended up you know witnessing a a horrible death uh it's just awful it's awful all around it is and it it's awful and what my fear here is that this will set a precedent and that because I think whatever you know Jamel Bowie might be putting on Twitter I think most people, day-to-day people, will be, like, sort of thinking that somewhere on the spectrum between that Penny is a hero and that what he did was understandable. Somewhere in that spectrum is probably, I would have a hunch, sort of popular opinion, especially popular opinion of people who ride the subway. And what's that going to encourage? That's going to mean that somebody who is just acting a little weird and not menacing will be, you know, the next person killed or it'll just escalate and then other people in the subway car get involved and multiple people are killed or hurt. You know, it just seems, it doesn't seem like a good direction. And and yeah, my take on this, like I'm not, you know, a public safety expert. I don't know exactly what which interventions have been, you know, proven more or less effective, but it seems to me that you just need more of some sort of visible presence of somebody, maybe transit workers, just around so that you know like what I keep coming back to with this story is that there's a list of 50 people in New York City you know a city of eight and a half million people right 50 people who are of most concern and Neely was on this list maybe people who know that this list exists and who's on it could be you know out looking around seeing what's happening you know because to me this just seems like a relevant piece of information and that detail to me really makes the whole idea of oh people saw somebody who was you know homeless and black and clearly a bit out of it and therefore it's like no these are people who ride the new york subway they are used to seeing a diverse group of people they are used to seeing people with mental illnesses this is not like they were expecting that this was going to be a country club and were shocked to learn they were on the new york subway yeah okay and this is a thing that it's it is so hard I mean especially online to try to have a conversation about this because when you bring up the fact that Neely you know was on this list yes of people who were considered to be like very much at risk very much in need of intervention and help who he also had um, he had a criminal record he had I think gone to jail for attempting to kidnap a seven-year-old like all eccentrics of course (laughs) yes yes I mean who among us right Um, and also had an outstanding felony warrant for having um, assaulted a senior citizen I think just kind of completely unprovoked you know punched somebody in the face so he did have a history of violence and if you mention this 
people immediately jump to, well, the people on the train didn't know that. And it's true, no, they didn't know precisely what Neely had been up to before he got on the train. Nobody knew that, absolutely granted. But you can surmise that a person who has a history like that when they got on the train and a series of events occurred that ended up with them being choked to death by people who perceived them as a threat, they were perhaps displaying behaviors that, you know, that were representative of violent tendencies, you know, that were in keeping with the things that they had done in the past that did escalate to violence, and that people accurately surmised that maybe something more sinister than just your typical subway craziness was happening there. Yes, yes. I mean, another aspect of this that I wrote about, and you will all get to see once that's up, is if there are indeed 50 people in New York who are the most concerning, and people whether mentally well or not, tend to ride on somewhat predictable routes on the subway. It's possible some of these people recognized him and had had previous encounters. Like, I'm just thinking about there's a man in Toronto who I've now seen twice on transit here, um, not even on the same line, who, like, has exposed himself by virtue of he's just basically, like, he has pants, but he wears them, like, below the area that needs to be covered. (laughs) Anyway, just, he has them. He just wears them differently. It's not that he doesn't own the pants. He does. He's just, and it's not like low slot. Like this is, anyway. It would be so much funnier if he had them, but he wasn't wearing them at all. He just was carrying them like slung around his neck. Yeah, I mean, in this case, like there was an, like this was something I actually did write about um, for an earlier piece that I was mentioning for the Globe and Mail about um, transit safety. I had seen this man before. So, on the streetcar so when i saw him on the bus and the bus driver was telling him he couldn't get on and that he had called the cops or that the cops had been called i don't know who exactly had called the cops or or if they had even been called because cops never showed up but that impacted my assessment of the situation and of whether this was going overboard or not because i thought okay this is somebody who has a pattern right and like i think that this idea that like that because they didn't the people on the subway didn't have somebody's literal arrest record means that they would have had no prior knowledge of this person before getting on the subway I I wouldn't say that I mean it's a big city but people are in the parts of it they're in you know and yeah yeah you do encounter the same people I actually used to I used to see this guy on the subway all the time he had one leg strapped into this like huge it almost looked like a DIY brace made of like pieces of a milk crate um, and he would kind of drag this bum leg up and down the aisles in the subway begging for change and I, I would see him all of the time and every time I saw him I would internally roll my eyes and the reason why was that this man lived in my neighborhood and every morning as I walked to the subway at 151st Street and Broadway I would see him also getting on the subway like whistling with his brace carried over his shoulder he was completely (laughs) able-bodied and he would just like go down into the subway and then he would put this thing onto a leg that worked just fine and then he would go and um, that's remarkable yeah, yeah he would he would put on this I mean like do credit really convincing performance had I not seen him like kind of you know jauntily trotting around the neighborhood all of the time with his knee brace like over his shoulder I think that I I think I have seen similar in New York but never to quite that 
rather colorful uh, <laughs> degree. I mean, I, I think what's confusing here is that, like, yes, this is all, like, to sort of maybe, like, take a step back and try to, like, make sense of the significance of it. Um, part of it is, like, it falls into these, you know, predictable culture wars categories of who who says what, you know, and, like, with all the sort of more nuanced people towards the center kind of arguing over tiny aspects of it. Nobody knowing, everybody finding it upsetting, you know, but, like, it's all... So there's all of this. But, like, I think there's... Like, you get on the one hand, it's supposed to be the progressive position to be pro-city, right? Urbanists, yimbies, whatever, you know, all of this. People who are in favor of apartment living and not having a car and all of these things, right? That's supposedly the progressive position. But then you also have this sort of, like, let's let cities become a hellscape because it would be unwoke to do anything else that also seems to be a strain of what's going on. And then probably by people who are not either not living in these cities or are just plain not or are living in them very very shielded in some way and yeah I think that's the trickiest piece for me is that like the sort of um supposedly progressive urbanist position gets very much hampered by this like let's let cities fall apart and that's where yeah I do think it is important to remember it is still safer to take the subway than to drive not that you can always pick one or the other I have myself lived somewhere before where you need to drive and where there aren't any subways like obviously it's not like I'm not suggesting that people you know take the subway in a place that doesn't have one but if cities aren't livable you don't get these like you know cultural or ecological or whatever benefits there are of cities Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I'm going to yes and you, um, because I want to land on something that you mentioned, which is sort of the, um, you know, the notion of like, understanding that the subway is a safe place. And I want to kind of like extrapolate out from that to talk about fear a little bit, and especially about the kind of progressive line on fear, because you have this real kind of tension between, yes, this sort of like, pro-city allow things to descend into chaos um you know like don't intervene because that's not woke ethos but it exists in tension with um something that was very prevalent during the me too movement that has still not necessarily subsided which is this notion that you should be fearful and mistrustful of people who you know who are in any way uncomfortable to be around it was like i mean and this is how you get um, people arguing that a guy who like slides into your DMs or is like a little awkward over lunch, like he deserves the total eradication and annihilation of his professional career because like, you know, you can't tolerate that. Um, it's this training to be fearful, to be mistrustful, to perceive that every uncomfortable interaction is like a trauma in the making, um, that a violation is likely to occur if somebody is doing something boundary challenged. This is a mindset that primes you to see danger where there is none. And I do think that you can't just tell people to feel that in one context and then tell them to switch it off in another. And I mean, again, like, I really have always been of the opinion that it's better to, you know, to be tolerant, to not freak out, to like, to not let minor incidents of, of discomfort 
be traumatic to you if you can possibly help it or to you know to read too much into things like if somebody is behaving in a way that's antisocial you know to assume from there that they you know automatically are going to do you or somebody else harm and you know, having spent obviously a lot of time riding the subway, as I'm sure you've experienced this too, because it's kind of impossible not to. Like, you know, I was groped and flashed and masturbated at, like, I don't know, probably two dozen times in the. That last one is a. Oh, yeah. Especially since the, the phones have made it so that you, you're never, or maybe I've, I'm not, I'm not always sure if I'm simply the woman in closest proximity. <laughs> and there's something on the phone of of actual interest or <laughs> that's just insulting it's like i'm right here and you're gonna watch porn on your phone and masturbate like in front of me no like yeah if you're gonna masturbate in my presence you are gonna masturbate to me or not at all <laughs> i'm I, sorry can i yes and and yes yes and this for a second or yes. sort of maybe i'm gonna big picture it actually maybe this seems to me what happened when me too gave way to blm right this idea that women should be always extremely afraid and are the victims switching over to the Karens, you know, that view of things in which the white woman afraid of the black man is the ultimate um, terrible person. Yeah, she's the oppressor. In her fear, she's being oppressive. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that everything is, you know, then suddenly seen through the lens of Emmett Till. And, you know, that that to me seems like kind of where this is all taking place discourse wise is this idea of like, you should not be scared of a black person, even if this specific black person is acting in a frightening way. Like that's just, I guess that's a part of this. Okay, that that's going to be like my, you know, my own personal last word on this is just this idea that anybody taking the New York subway sees a black person. It's like, oh my gosh, that's scary. <laughs> like, no, like maybe there has once been a tourist who has had that react. I don't know. But to me, this just does not seem a logical way somebody would, be on the subway in New York I don't know that's just I'm just like very fixated on this I know it's kind of a small point but just um yeah no it's I mean it is interesting to consider and I don't think anybody could possibly argue that had the like racial valences of this incident been different the way it's being discussed now would be very very different right right I mean I think this Yes, I think that's true. And I I think it is certainly possible for, you know, crimes to be racially motivated. And I think, you know, I'm not gonna like I'm an agnostic on what was in the heart of hearts of Daniel Penny, because I don't know, and I cannot read his mind. And there has not yet been any uh, investigation at the level that would say. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. we are withholding judgment on that. But on all of the other topics we have discussed today. (laughs) Judge away. And uh, do we have anything else to say about this? Uh, I, I will just advise people not to kill anyone on the subway if they don't absolutely, absolutely have to do that to defend um, life. <laughs> I guess that I, I, I am not in favor of, uh, of uh, strangling the person on the subway who is merely being a little strange. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just as a general rule, try not to kill anybody on your commute. Mm -hmm. Seems like good advice. Before we go, uh, 
We are Feminine Chaos. We are a podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please join us on our Substack at femchaospod.substack.com, where for $5 a month, you can become a premium subscriber and get access to more conversations like this one exclusively for our premium folks, as well as our back archive of episodes and open threads and comment threads and other fun community stuff. Have I forgotten anything? No, I, I think that's right. Um, yeah, so we have an open thread um, as of May 10th. We do them every other Wednesday um, where you can suggest topics and talk amongst yourselves. And yes. we have a Twitter. Yes, we do. It's Fem, it's Fem Chaos Pod at Twitter. Yes, it is Fem Chaos Pod, indeed. And um, thank you for listening. Bye. 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 <laughs>